When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural inspirations. I'm Adam Hans. Thanks so much for joining me. Coming up a bit later on, your ears will be the lucky recipients of my chat with musician Guy Blakesley about Bob Dylan's notorious bootleg album, Live 1966, the Royal Albert Hall concert. Uh, this is a really cool one. And as always, I'm totally unbiased in that opinion. But really, this concert was a pivotal moment in Bob Dylan's career and, truth be told, a pivotal moment in the history of popular music. Uh, I don't know that any of my previous guests have chosen to talk about an artwork that was also a pretty earth-shattering historical event, so this was pretty fun to dig into. And it'll take your mind off the fact that this is the bleakest winter ever in history. That is not an opinion, that is fact. My god. New York right now is not that fun. It's freezing, there's tons of snow, I'm even more trapped in my apartment than I've been throughout this last year, so... Yeah, not great. Anyway, forget that. Let's distract ourselves with some music history. Yay! Quick guy facts before we hop on over to the interview. Guy Blakesley is the critically acclaimed guitar-wielding frontman of Psych Legends' The Entrance Band. In addition to his work with The Entrance Band, Guy has released solo albums under the Entrance moniker, namely 2004's country blues epic Wandering Stranger, 2006's self-released cult classic Prayer of Death, and 2017's Book of Changes. He has typically used his own name to release his most experimental and confounding records, and his brand new album, Postcards from the Edge, is no exception. It is out this Friday, February 5th. Quick facts about Live 1966, the Royal Albert Hall concert. It is a two-disc live album by Bob Dylan, released in 1998. It was recorded at the Manchester Free Trade Hall during Dylan's world tour in 1966, though early bootlegs attributed the recording to the Royal Albert Hall, so it became known as the Royal Albert Hall Concert. Extensively bootlegged for decades, it is an important document in the development of popular music during the 1960s. The set list consisted of two parts, with the first half of the concert being Dylan alone on stage performing an entirely acoustic set of songs, while the second half of the concert has Dylan playing an electric set of songs alongside his band, The Hawks. The first half of the concert was greeted warmly by the audience, while the second half was highly criticized, with heckling going on before and after each song, including the infamous moment when an audience member could be heard screaming, Judas. So there you have it. Now let's get to the good stuff. Here comes my chat with Guy Blakesley about Live 1966, the Royal Albert Hall concert. 
so do you remember being turned on to this album? Do you remember uh, how you discovered it? I, I remember like around the age that I got into it, I was, I had been in all these kind of punk bands and hardcore bands in my teenage years and kind of part of this band scene of like loud music. And, <laughs> uh, and I was just starting to get, I had been playing guitar all along since I was like, 10 years old, but I had been starting to get into writing songs on my own and kind of looking for an archetype. It was like a, it was like when I discovered, I already knew about Bob Dylan since I was a little child, but because my parents were really into Bob Dylan and my uncle was really into Bob Dylan. But I remember discovering this particular album, which is a live album. So it's, it's an album, but it's really a performance. And I remember just identifying so much at the age of I'd say 19 or 20 years old with the archetype. It's kind of like, I think of it as he's embodying in this performance a very strong archetype of the, it's like a shaman or a magician in a way, but it's also like a a troubadour, obviously, in a way, and it's a poet and a singer. It's all these things fused into this one archetype, and it's just one person standing on the stage completely alone, captivating and kind of hypnotizing everyone with this creative power that's just so advanced like at that time it was so I guess part of the whole fascination I have with it is the history and the the moment in time that this occurred and what had been leading up to it and what followed it it's almost like he's standing on the precipice of this huge transformation and he's even in that performance he does this performance by himself and then he walks off the stage and then he comes back with this band and starts playing really loud and people are booing and feel betrayed by it. Mm-hmm. So it's like even in that, at that show, he was already on to the next thing. And it's so, yeah, it's like a really interesting moment in time as well as a, an artistic statement. Yeah, it's a really interesting, uh, you know, uh, a, a standard live album um, you know, you can listen to and uh, appreciate the music, appreciate that it's a different sound to what you would hear if, uh, you know, some the, the difference between uh, studio and um, uh, live recordings. But with this, it's like l- listening to the music, listening to the changes in the music, the progression that uh, his music was going through, but also it's this historic uh, moment that's captured that's this notorious, really incredible, weighty thing. Um, you know, this moment that his career had, uh, the, the trajectory of his career, there's all these other complicated issues involved, you know, not just the transition between acoustic and electric, but uh, moving away from protest music into something that's a bit yeah. more... Uh, you know, not necessarily pop, but, you know, mainstream um, and all the complications involved in that. And not just having, I mean, you, you don't really hear it on this album as much, but um, the, the audience reaction, see, like he, seeing and hearing all of this visceral stuff, just the, yeah. the amount of anger that was generated um, by these changes that, you know, weren't subtle, but it's not like... Uh, a nuclear disaster, which was kind of the reaction, you know? Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I, uh, like I said, he walks off the stage after this solo performance and comes back with a band. And then everyone starts yelling and screaming and booing and calling him Judas and stuff like in that same concert. And it's like, I feel like this performance is a, it's the end of one thing and the beginning of another. And it's right on that precipice. And so he's basically really quickly created this archetypal role for himself and taking it as far as you can really quickly and then discarded it and moved on to something else and I, that that performance is a is like captures that moment where he had everyone in the audience in the palm of his hand with this very kind of gentle and very dreamlike performance of these really imaginative compositions and then he walks away and comes back and kind of just like stomps upon that basically. Mm-hmm. And, and, and another thing that I've, you know, in being so interested in it, I've listened to some of the shows that were like the day before or the week after from that same tour. And this particular one that I thought would be worth talking about is even within all of those, which are the same songs and the similar, it, th- this particular one has such a particularly pure energy and such a it's like the distillation of all the shows before and after were it was perfect basically like a couple days later in paris he was tuning the guitar for 15 minutes and people Mm -hmm. were like tune up like during the acoustic show people were yelling at him and he was mocking he had a huge american flag behind the stage and was mocking the french people and saying that this is american music you wouldn't understand Mm. and all this like kind of provocative obnoxious kind of stuff but in this particular show he's just so in the moment and so in tune with himself that it's just transcendently beautiful and not not obnoxious or aggressive or like it's really sensitive and like it's really beautiful basically but it's he's like his whole character throughout his career has many different faces and many different attitudes and a lot of the time he's kind of poking at something or agitating on purpose in a way. But in this moment, he's just that there's a quote that I wrote down here in my own handwriting. It's kind of hard to read, but I thought this is what I always, this really captured what I felt about it. And this is from Allen Ginsberg, but he says, what struck me is that he was at one or he became identical with his breath. He had become a column of air, so to speak, where his total physical and mental focus was this single breath coming out of his body. He had found a way in public to be almost like a shaman with all of his intelligence and consciousness focused on his breath. So that's like, it's like the the way that he is singing and playing the harmonica and everything is like, I think he nailed it in that he's stretching all the notes as far as he can with the breath that he has. And then he's taking another deep breath and going as far as he can. And like, so as someone that practices meditation and breath work and things like that, I can, there's a, he's correct that there is like a spiritual or kind of mystical aspect to working with your breath in that way. And that's part of, I think, how he's like capturing everyone into paying attention is that he's like altering time basically with his attunement to his breathing in a way and another thing that Allen Ginsberg said about it was that it was like an he was like an aeolian harp Mm. so an aeolian harp is played by the wind 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's a combination of a person's idea and just pure natural power of air. kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it also felt to me like he was, especially in the first half, um, as I'm, I'm an actor, as someone who has, you know, uh, done live performance and knows what it's like to kind of feed off of a crowd's energy, that first half where it's just like rapt attention, people getting exactly what they want and the connection between uh, performer and audience is really apparent. And then the second half, when it's like this transition into the new, into, you know, the, the direction that he's heading towards and it's so volatile and it's so, you know, hostile and he feeds off of that energy too. And there's a lot of, you know, the obviously famous uh, Judas moment where he, yeah. uh, the, the defiance kind of comes to a head. Um, but, uh, have you seen no direction home? Oh yeah. Yeah. So like all of the buildup, all of the, you know, uh, coming to terms with fame, he was a young guy. He was like 25. And, um, I, I actually thought watching that, seeing those press conferences, seeing the way that he kind of, uh, the combative relationship that he has with the press, where there's all of these reporters who still have this kind of, madman style uh you know like oh what do you think about uh the music that you're pro- doing now and what you and his responses are feel very modern uh in terms yeah. of just kind of like off the cuff joking around with people batting away stupid questions um and as adept as he is at that it felt like it was wearing him down wearing him down wearing him down and maybe it started at the Newport Folk Festival when he's like trying to introduce these new ideas and saying, I want to move in a new direction and having this just like absolute rejection from all these people who had adored him. Yeah. Um, so seeing that contrast is really fascinating to me, too. Yeah. And the 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 thing that he's doing by himself that is kind of like giving them what they want is also really hugely original and advanced and taking that form to a place that no one had ever taken it before. So it's like he's already stretched that to its ultimate limit in a sense. And he's presenting that knowing that he's already kind of beyond it. And it's, Mm. and it's the, the imagery and the kind of free association that, that goes into creating those kind of songs is really a whole other aspect of it that I find so inspiring. It's like, as a, as a musician, I wouldn't like to, I think about this a lot, like, because I love a record like that, it's not that I want to sound like that, but I do want to take some kind of inspiration or cue from how the person made the most of their creative imagination to create something that was their own thing. And I want to mm-hmm. I want to express my own vision with that same commitment and like adventurous spirit. So it's like I don't want to sound like Bob Dylan, but I want to be like Bob Dylan in that time because he was really going so far beyond anyone else and where his imagination was going. And and the situations and stories that are presented in those songs are the kind of things that I feel like they make you want to live more. It's mm-hmm. not just that it makes you want to be cool or something it's like there's such a depth and a yeah there's so much going on between people and characters in the songs that it's like there's mystery and there's it's like he he's learned something profound about experience 
And he's transmitting that in a way that makes you want to have your own kind of uncharted experience in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And also (laughs) thinking about the fact that that that's where he was when he was 25, still basically at the beginning of his career, he's about to turn 80 this year. Yeah. And, um, thinking about how much further he had to go and how much more music he was going to put out that, um, it, it makes me even more impressed with him, knowing the backstory, knowing the uh, having a, an understanding of who he is as a person, as well as just the music. I think those two things in in this particular instance, it's like uh, ha- having a sense of what was happening in his life, um, the this you know being at this kind of crossroads that you can listen to the music and take it at face value and 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 not uh, absorb the context but i think the context adds another layer to yeah. it yeah he's very yeah especially then he was i feel like I, I like almost everything that bob dylan ever did and i really love a lot of the newer things that he's done in the past like since the 90s i think i love it and and a lot of my friends and people that I respect love his early work and then are like, I don't want to listen. I don't want to go see him. I'm like, Bob Dylan's playing. Let's go. And they're Mm. like, I don't think I want to see that. I'm like, I've seen him a number of times, you know, and all in the two thousands. And it's always, it's always amazing. And, and there's always something to learn from it. But, but this particular show, I feel like is the, like in the movie, uh, what's it called? I'm not there. Which is like a the this is like the Kate Bl- this is Kate Blanchett as Bob Dylan right. basically which is like an androgynous kind of like transdimensional elf creature that's there's definitely there's definitely drugs and I mean there's definitely as someone that has had issues with drugs earlier in my life I can say from experience there's definitely some drugs involved in mm-hmm. his in his behavior and his his where he, what he's able to bring back and tell us about there's he's definitely taking a lot of risk to be able to to know what he knows and to try to say what he's saying and it's i, w- I wouldn't want to glorify that but i would want to say that there's it's like he's going that's why i think that alan ginsburg saying that there's something shaman like about him is true because in in many ways what a shaman or a medicine man or whatever does is goes to these further reaches of consciousness that not everyone has to go to and then is able to help with or or broadcast back to us what they saw and what they know without everyone having to go there so it's like Mm -hmm. so it's like he did all this exploration he definitely inspired and encouraged people to do that too but he also is bringing back the story from this adventure that he's been on and that way we can relive it without having to like endanger ourselves like that and and shortly you know in the grand scheme of his life shortly after this show he had basically a full breakdown and when and when he was seen again he was a different person a different he looked different he sounded different so it's like this is like the peak of one of his identities and i feel like following this show it kind of went downhill into the dark outcome of it (laughs) and then he had like a motorcycle accident and then which i don't know was if that was even a real thing and then and then when you see him again he's much healthier looking and he has kids and he lives in the in nature and he's playing country music and it's just a so yeah this is like he couldn't keep going this way 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think also like th- this to me was the beginning of people's understanding that he was not a people pleaser. He was not someone who was going to conform to his audience's expectations uh, or his peers' expectations of, of what he was going to do. Yeah. And, you know, this was a unique time in history where he had been making protest music. He was involved in a movement um, that was, you know, anti-war, anti-establishment. And there are a lot of people who felt really betrayed by that. But there are also there's also a faction of people who are just like, this isn't to my taste. And the idea that now anybody would go to a concert and hear their favorite band play a new album that just wasn't for them and they'd start booing and screaming Judas at the stage is like not yeah. something that would ever happen. Um, so it's an extreme version of, of that kind of thing. But uh, I heard an interview with Paul McCartney recently where he was talking about Dylan and just saying he admires him so much. And one of the things that he admires most about him is that he does not give a fuck. Yeah. And he will play these, you know, he said, I'll go to to see him and he'll be playing a song for 20 minutes that I'm like, what is this song? And I'll realize that it's like a Rolling Stone or something that's like one of his most famous songs that he's just deconstructed and fucked with and put back together and he doesn't care if people recognize it or if they like that version he's you know experimenting he's bored of playing the same shit for 60 years and just wants to try something different and his artistry his musicianship comes first and people can take it or leave it and you know people have been taking it for a very long time yeah There's there's an, another thing that I always think about. There's a there's like a conversation between Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan that I've read about where they're talking to they're like they admire each other in a way that they can't really admire anyone else because they're although they're so different they're kind of on the same level. Like mm. if, if you were Leonard Cohen, you would be like, how does Bob Dylan do that? There's probably not many other songwriters that you would be impressed by, and vice versa. And they're talking and. Leonard Cohen is, or Bob Dylan says, Leonard, how long did it take you to write Hallelujah? Which is definitely Leonard Cohen's most long lasting song that people will continue to cover now. And it's like, it's still more alive now than it ever was when he was alive. And Leonard says, oh, it took me five years and I filled all these journals with it. There were thousands of verses and then I then I burned those and I started over and, and this is what, and these are the ones that I stuck with. And he's like, Bob, how long did it take you to write? And I don't know what song it was, but just some Bob Dylan song. And he said, Oh, five minutes. I was riding in a cab and I just had this flash of insight and I wrote it down. And then I went to the studio the next day and that's the record. So it's like the, and, and behind that story is that whereas Leonard Cohen is like a writer dedicated to the craft of writing and would spend hours and hours every day writing and that's what he that was his like spiritual pursuit in a way was writing and he was always fine-tuning and like just devoted to it as his mission in life bob dylan's whole thing is that your entire life and your entire being is your art form and these songs and poems and things are just little flashes of that but it's not that he's lazy it's that he's cultivating he's cultivating his consciousness at all times and then the songs are like little glimpses into that so it's like he's not going to sit down for four hours and write and write and write and write and erase it and cross it out and start again and think oh what about this word what if it's different than that word he's just devoting most of his time to being in the right state of mind 
to capture those inspirations when they come, but also cultivating the experiences and the perspectives that make it so that you can quickly write a song and it's profound. So it's like, it's like the person is the artwork and the art is like the little, little expressions of that being. But it's not that even though it takes five minutes to write a song, there's no work that goes into it. The work is the whole work of being the person. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And I mean, it, it shows in the, you know, his prolificness, what he's released a hundred albums, like, you know, a crazy amounts of work. And it also is an, an explanation for why he would get frustrated with the idea of playing his biggest hits in the same way, in the most you know, in the way that they were recorded originally for 60 years, when he has that mindset that it's like, these are snapshots um, of a very particular moment and he's constantly moving forward and his work is an expression of where he is at that moment and having to rehash what he's already produced in exactly the same way instead of you know meeting it where he is now would be you know uh intolerable <laughs> yeah and and that part of the inner like the the hidden occult kind of meaning of all of that is that all the like it's what what he's in a way teaching or trying to teach everyone is that all we have is now and don't take the now for granted that's that's all you got basically and so repeating the same formula or the same it's like his identity is constantly changing because he's so present and we could all learn a thing or two from that level of presence where you're able to let go of who you were a few minutes ago right. in order to progress. Like, I feel like that's an essential problem that human beings have is that we're so bogged down in what has already, what we already thought or what we already did. Or like when you walk, when you walk into a room that you've been in before, your mind isn't even necessarily taking it in the same way. You're just, you know that that, window is there and so you don't even need to see it anew or what you know but he's basically was on he's still in a way is on that adventure but he was at that time on an adventure of seeing things in the moment in a new way constantly and that's like in order to do that you have to keep deprogramming yourself basically that's what that's one of the when I first got into this period of Bob Dylan when I was in my yeah I would say like late teens early 20s and I was like, who am I? What is my life all about? Like, what does it all mean? That's like the kind of state of mind that I was in. And I've really resonated with his approach, which was just to be so present that it's almost like hard to pin down who you even are. Kind of. <laughs> right. And, and it's, right. it's psychedelic. I mean, it's psychedelic in a way because you're what psychedelia is or what psychedelic means is like a manifestation of the mind. But it's basically like a... A heightened state of presence, like not take not taking reality for granted, but being able to perceive it in an open and unbiased way, kind of right. And also having the ability to, like, I think that there has always been this expectation of him of self seriousness and um, constant introspection and wanting to like 
analyze his entire life and career and, you know, rehash all of the explanations and uh, explain his methodology and whatever. And he's a funny guy. He's like, you know, the, he he brushes off shit like that, where it's like the, the expectation of taking each of these snapshots and wanting to, you know, pull them apart and examine them on a microscopic level doesn't really appeal to him that he he thinks of things perhaps more uh holistically that it's like a body of work that's led him to where he is now instead of um you know taking the time to pull everything apart uh in that minute detail which i i think is uh admirable as well i love seeing him interviewed he's he said he yeah like, uh, the the lightness and the cleverness that sometimes doesn't come through in his uh, in his performance or in um, his his music, I think uh, it it adds that kind of uh, levity to his catalog as well. Yeah, but and and some you know bef- like the when you mentioned that he was like the kind of like the figurehead of this protest movement, and then he wanted to move away from that. And this concert that we're talking about is kind of like a declaration of this individual vision and not not being responsible for what anyone else believes in or you know that's that's really important and and then again like a lot of these protest songs from 1963 or 1964 keep coming up in my conversations with people about what's going on now and like one of them that that me and another friend have recently thought was pretty relevant now is only a pawn in their game that seems like which which is you know which song that is it's like it's about it's basically about how the southern political establishment of that segregation time was using uneducated poor white people as their foot soldiers and basically tricking them into believing that they were acting in their own self-interest when actually they were just a pawn in this game that was way bigger than them they're being tricked basically and that's exactly what that's exactly what has continued to go on but especially in the past four years and that's exactly why these people were under the illusion that they were representing their own best interest by storming the capitol build you know it's like they're just pawn they're pawns in this game and they they're being tricked they're basically being made to believe that they're fighting for their own freedom when what they're fighting for is the power of these people that could care less about them and literally hate them. And th- yeah. and that's what his song is about in 1963. The In a way, he's saying, like, don't hate these people, don't hate these ignorant, manipulated, racist people. They're just being tricked. Like, mm. look at the look at the bigger picture. They're just a pawn in the game of this larger thing. And they're just like the fodder for this manipulative system. I don't know. It really resonates with, with a lot of the stuff that's going on now. And that, and that's, and that's a song that probably the Bob Dylan of 1966 would think was stupid. And yet like 60 years later, more, it's like totally keeps coming up in conversation because he's talking about, he, he has an insight into political stuff that very few people, very few people making a song have ever really had. And he's he's trying to go beyond it after that because it's like overly simplified, and that and I and I would agree, but in a way that simplicity is what makes it still relevant. Now he boi- he boils it down to a picture and a metaphor that you can 
continue to apply. Yeah, it is uh, rather depressing to think <laughs> yeah. how little uh, progress has been made in the political landscape. Well, country. how? Well, how? M- I mean, so many. So I don't know because not to go too far off the topic, but a lot of what I've been trying to understand is like how how people came to be mistaken that supporting the dictator-esque president is a revolutionary position, for instance, or that, I don't know, that's, that's kind of like, and how like this sort of like mystical, metaphysical, new age spirituality world of yoga teachers and all these people somehow got tricked into believing that this dark manipulative force was like going to save them or, you know, it's very, it's very confusing, but, but that's why I keep thinking about only a pawn in their game. It's like Mm -hmm. a lot of people right now are like, see that there's a game. They see that there's manipulation and deceit going on. And yet they also are, and I'm not immune to it either, but the, Mm. the, the kind of like the fad towards like a right wing perspective as being alternative, for instance, that's just like, you're getting fooled, man. (laughs) But, but that, I think I think that the I think that Bob Dylan's kind of insight into things like that will continue to be relevant even if he's way beyond that. Mm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh I think that is a a, a very poignant place to stop. <laughs> cool. Uh, um thank you so much. This was yeah, great. totally. This thanks. Was really thanks, man. Really uh, wonderful. Of course, uh, man. I really appreciate you making time for me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, uh, man. Take care. Have a good one. You too. Yay! Wasn't that interesting and fun? That's because I won't rest until you're both entertained and informed. Thanks again to Guy for a fantastic chat. As I mentioned earlier, his new album, Postcards from the Edge, is out this Friday, so download and stream it and buy it in every physical format, too. Um, okay, so now, a little inspirational artwork of the week from me. There's a movie called Friendsgiving that's just landed on Netflix. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I assumed that this movie was going to be awful. The trailer made it look so, so, so bad. Seriously, whoever put that trailer together should not be allowed to make trailers ever again. But my husband and I were in the mood for something dumb, and we'd burned through all of our other content, so we gave it a little try, and we really liked it. It's so ridiculous and very silly and absurd. And there are lots of great people in it, like Malin Ackerman, Kat Dennings, Aisha Tyler, and Jane Seymour, like Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Uh, Crazy. Anyway, the title is basically the whole plot. Friends having Thanksgiving together. Uh, Hijinks ensue, and that's pretty much it. So pretty simple. It's not going to change your life, but it's funny, and it's light, and it'll distract you from reality. And, you know, that's all we need right now. Um, quick side note, um, it's Rotten Tomatoes reviews are in the toilet, but if you look at them, they all appear to be written by bots. Cute. And the ones that aren't are full of misogyny. Yay! You know, a movie that's written by and directed by and starring women, um, might be getting some terrible reviews just because of that. So why don't you just watch it as a fuck you to the trolls? Okay? Alright. And that's all she wrote for this week. Um, If you like this show, please tell a friend about it. Just one. I'm not greedy. Uh, And if you haven't, you should probably subscribe, don't you think? 
Um, other than that, stay safe and sane, be good, and until next time, bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.